Good morning. I need to wave to the people online because I heard that they can't hear me, so DJ's working on that. We did work on the mic uh, this morning and last week, so hopefully we've got those issues because uh, I don't think I could handle holding the mic again this week. Um, so, part four of our This Is Us series, we're going to wrap up today. Um, and so I want to give a, a little bit of a recap. So in the beginning, God and humanity exist together. The story of Adam and Eve, the very first few chapters of the book of Genesis, they existed in this perfect space that was called the garden. It's where God and his image bearers partnered together to rule and reign over creation. And God told them that they were to do two things. They were to be fruitful and multiply, and that they were also to tend or take care of the created potential around them. So it's just blank slate, and they were to care for, they were to tend the garden around them and, and grow things and experience life and create and all these great things as they were made in God's image. But Adam and Eve fell prey to their own selfish desires. You remember that in week one, their own selfish nature. And they destroyed the partnership as God had intended it to be. And so God's desire has always been from the very beginning to be in a perfect relational partnership with his pinnacle creation people. That's a lot of P's, I know, but I was trying to get you to remember. <laughs> We've all failed and fallen victim to the same selfish nature that existed within Adam and Eve. And so giving in may have started with Eve, giving in to temptation and selfishness may have started with Eve, but it hasn't stopped with you and I. It continues today. Throughout humanity's history, God has been working a plan to get us back to that relational partnership that he desires with all people. So God sent his son Jesus as a human to fix humanity's failures so that God can institute a new covenant with all of humanity based on his son's perfect life and not on our ability to be perfect, which we all know is impossible. So Jesus came as God's promised king. Jesus lived a perfect life. He died in place of humanity to pay for humanity's sin. And then he rose on the third day just as he promised and as God promised. Through his perfect life and his atoning death, he made a way for anyone from anywhere, regardless of their ancestry, to become a child of Abraham, a partner in the covenant with God through faith, even if they're not connected by family. And, and this is the good news that Jesus proclaimed. We talked about this in, in week two, the four declarations of Jesus' kingdom. There is a kingdom. God has a kingdom. It's the kingdom of God. Jesus said, the kingdom has come near. The second declaration is that Jesus is the king of God's kingdom, that he died on the cross, and so he's the crucified king. And that Jesus rose on the third day, and so he is the resurrected king. And so number two is who Jesus is. He is the king. And three and four are what he did in our place. He died and he rose again. Now these declarations, uh, these fulfillments of prophecy require a response from us. And so Jesus himself said that we need to repent, believe, and follow 
in response to this kingdom coming, in response to his kingship. And so those who responded to Jesus in this way sign up to be his disciple. And and we learned last week that a disciple is someone who follows Jesus with the intention of being like him. So over the last three weeks, we've learned um, several things. We've learned, first of all, what sin is. That sin is uh, about how we are selfish in our nature. That this is a big problem for you and I. Right, it, um, it ends the partnership with God. Sin gets in the way and it cuts that off. It's a big problem for us, but sin is not a problem for God. God doesn't sin. He's not tempted to sin. He doesn't fall into the traps of, of sin. And so it's a big problem for us. It's not a big problem for God. And because of that, sin or our sin is not the point of his story. Sin is not the point of history. It's not part of God's, a part of what's going on, but it's not a part of God's plan. Next, we learned about the gospel, what the gospel of Jesus is. And I don't expect you to remember it all completely right now, but um, I'll share the gospel. Jesus, the king, died in our place and rose as our defender, inviting us into a relationship with the Father where we could live our real lives through the Holy Spirit's power as we daily surrender to Jesus' reign and wait for his return. That's our gospel, and that's what Jesus said he came to proclaim, and he told everybody, and that gospel changed people's lives. We next learned about what a disciple was. It's someone who looks more like Jesus every day. That's the simple way that we kind of wrap our heads around it. And today, we're going to look at the role of the church in God's plan. God's plan to restore the relational partnership that he had with humanity in the very beginning. Right? So you can see, this is kind of the the progression Sin got in the way on our part and it separated us from God. And then Jesus comes and he proclaims this gospel that he's the king in God's kingdom and he died and he rose again to make a way for us to have a relationship with the Father once again, to be disciples of Jesus and to look more like him. And and then God gives us the church that we can be a part of it and, and help to restore that relational partnership that Jesus or that God desired from the very beginning. So as we take a moment out to look at the church, what it is and why we exist and what we're trying to accomplish here at Real Life, before we get into that, let's just stop for a moment and go to God and, and ask him to give us understanding and ears to hear and hearts to understand this morning. God, we thank you for being present with us, and and you promise that whenever we come in your name, you're here. And and, and so we're here, God, to worship you, to learn about you, to look more like your son, Jesus, to, to, to learn how to be followers of yours, to look more like your son, Jesus, every day. And so would you give us those ears to hear today? Would you give us a heart that understands and that even desires to understand? Would you give us a mind to be able to wrap around the, the things that we're going to learn today and we're going to talk about? And most importantly, God, would you give us the desire to, to live out these things outside of the walls of this church, to carry the gospel with us outside of this place, to, to really not just look like a disciple while we're here, but to look like a disciple of yours outside 
on every other day of the week. And so, um, God, just thank you for being with us. Thank you for this church. Thank you for what you're doing among us. And God, we just lift this time up to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So in, um, in week number two of our series, that's two weeks ago, we talked about the gospel proper. We talked about those four declarations and those three responses. Three of them come from Jesus in Mark chapter 8, verse 27 and following, where Jesus asked this question of his disciples. He's there, he's been teaching them, they've been watching him perform miracles, they've listened to the things that he's said, and then he's had opportunity to get those disciples kind of away from the large group, and he's explained his parables to them. So they've got a level of understanding that a lot of other people didn't get. And so they had seen this go on for a long period of time. They watched him drive out demons. They watched him heal people. They watched him touch lepers and cure the leper. Instead of Jesus becoming unclean by touching the leper, Jesus' cleanness was transferred to those lepers. I mean, it was this incredible thing. And the disciples watched all of these things happen. And it gets to this point in Mark chapter 8 where Jesus and his disciples are alone together. And he asked them this question, who do you say that I am? And they talk about that a little bit. Well, some people say this, and some people say that. So Jesus says, no, who do you believe that I am? And so Peter responds for the group, and he says, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the Son of the living God. And it's at that moment when everything begins to change in Jesus' relationship with the disciples. Because as we read on in Mark chapter 8, Jesus is like, okay, you get it. You know who I am. The Father has revealed this to you. And so here's what's going to happen next. I'm going to die, and three days later I'm going to rise. I mean, he's totally rocked their world. But things begin to change. So Peter said to Jesus, you are the Christ or Messiah. Remember, those two words mean exactly the same thing. They both mean anointed one of God, or really what they mean is that Jesus is the king. So Peter's saying, Jesus, you are the king. But what we didn't talk about uh, a few weeks ago on that morning was what Jesus said after Peter makes this great confession. And we didn't talk about it in part because Mark doesn't record it. Mark just jumps right to the next thing where Jesus starts downloading all this information about his death to his disciples. But Matthew actually wrote about, in his biography of Jesus, he wrote about what happened, the exchange that happened between Jesus and Peter and the other disciples right after this. And so we want to look at that today uh, in Matthew chapter 16. Here's what happened. So Peter has made his good confession, you're the king, you're Jesus the king, the son of God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, that just means son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, my father who is in heaven has. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, there's a few really important things that happen in, in this verse that I think are really easy for us to skip over if we don't take a little time to, to think about what actually is going on here. So one of the things that, that happens is that Jesus changes Peter's name. His name was Simon, and Jesus says, you're not going to be called Simon anymore. Your name is going to be called Peter. Now, the word Peter means rock or um, stone or pebble. 
And, and so Jesus changes Peter's name from Simon to, to rock or to stone. Secondly, it's the very first time that we see the word church appear in the New Testament. I haven't seen that word before. It's a brand new word in the New Testament. It's the first time that Jesus has used this word. And so the word church is the Greek word ekklesia, which is translated assembly in the Old Testament, and it's translated church in the New Testament. But each time it's used, however it's translated, it always means the same thing. It means an assembly of people, usually a group of people, who are called out of everybody else to be a group together. Usually it's for a specific purpose, like um, to worship God, or in this case, use with the disciples um, and what's going to happen in the future. Now again, this is the first time this ancient word for church is used by Jesus. It's the first time it appears in the New Testament. It's the first time that Jesus tells us that he's planning to build a church. Like he says, look, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to build my church. And they're like, whoa, wait a minute. We didn't know you were doing that. It's a brand new thing. I'm going to build my church. And then he says, the gates of hell will not prevail against this church that he's going to build. That's some pretty big stuff that Jesus just drops in just a couple of, of verses there. Jesus did not come as God's king to die, to be raised from the dead, to build his church on the weak faith of someone else. So, there's a lot of confusion about this passage among church people. Because when you first read it, you might get the idea that because the word Peter means rock or stone, that Jesus is saying, hey Peter, I'm going to build my church on you. You're the guy. You're going to be the foundation of the church. That's pretty silly, I think. <laughs> because we know that not long after Jesus makes this statement, Peter denies Jesus three times. Peter has to be then reinstated as a disciple after the fact, after Jesus has rose from the dead and begins to talk. He's like, okay, Peter, come on, buddy. It's like, it's like pick yourself up. Let's go. You got work to do. So I don't think Jesus came and lived this perfect life and died and rose again from the dead to build his church that the gates of hell will not prevail against and build it all on this guy, Peter. I think a much more rational and logical explanation is that Jesus was saying, not on Peter, but on the good confession of Peter, that Jesus is God's king, that that's the foundation that Jesus is going to build his church on. And it's that foundation, that Jesus is God's king, that hell will not be able to prevail Against. Now, there's a lot of people that talk about Peter. In fact, Peter goes um, way back. There are some people, some religions that believe that Peter was the very first pope and that every other pope since them has somehow um, come from the line of Peter. But um, that's a little struggle for me, in part because Peter was not the guy in charge of the church in Jerusalem. He was not the number one guy. The number one guy of the church in Jerusalem, kind of the, the mother church of every other church. In fact, Peter or, or Paul, when he's out preaching, and Peter, when he's out preaching and, and planting new churches and telling people about Jesus, they come back to Jerusalem 
And they tell one specific purpose, and really the whole group, but one guy is at the top, and they tell him all the things that they've done. And that guy was James. James is the brother of Jesus, who was not a follower before Jesus' death and resurrection, but absolutely was after. And he became kind of the leader of all of the disciples in Jerusalem and the leader of the church. And so in Acts 12 and 15 and 21, James is mentioned as the prominent leader of the church in Jerusalem to which all other disciples looked up to. So Peter isn't even in the very beginning Peter isn't even the the leader of this church that Jesus begins to build. So it makes much more sense that Jesus was going to build his church on the rock or foundation of Peter's good confession that Jesus is God's anointed king. And our gospel definition, in fact, today starts out that way, right? Jesus, the king. This is who he is. This is what he's done. So Jesus tells his followers that he is going to build a church on earth, and and I believe that his intention was that his church on earth would mirror the kingdom in heaven. Remember Jesus' prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so there's this idea that Jesus wants the things that are done on on earth to be a mirror of the things that are done in heaven. That we would follow God as quickly and as completely as the angels in heaven follow God. And, And I think this is best lived out in the idea of the church. As a disciple or follower of Jesus, we're to make present the kingdom of God in our lives. We talked about that last week. As followers, when we live by the ways and the wisdom and the word of God, we make present the kingdom of God in our daily lives. And what better place is that seen than in the church? And as people who are part of the church, who are encouraged weekly to live out the calling of God in their lives, to give and to serve and to do all of those things. And so I think Jesus' intention was the church would mirror the kingdom of God in in heaven, that we would follow him, that we would follow his word and his ways and his wisdom, and we do that together corporately. In fact, Paul says in his first letter to Timothy that the church of the living God is the pillar and foundation of the truth. The church is the place where truth is held onto. Um, Truth doesn't change for the church, right? We go back to the Bible always. Okay, what does the Bible say? And how do we live our lives? How do we conform our lives to look more like what we see in God's word? That doesn't happen in any other place in our lives. In every other place in our lives, truth changes. So we're going to look at some key truths about Jesus' bride, his church, this morning. So the first thing um, is that the church was God's plan. You can read about that in Matthew 16, 18. Jesus said that he would build his future church on the truth. We just read it uh, of who he was, right? And, and so the, the truth is that the church was God's plan from the very beginning Jesus said, hey, look, I'm going to build this church. I'm going to live. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again. I'm going to build this church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Secondly, we find out a truth of the church is that Jesus loves the church. 
In Ephesians 5, we read about husbands and wives, right? And, and, and we're told there that the husband should love the wife as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her. And so Paul is saying in Ephesians that, look, Jesus sacrificed himself. He didn't just build the church, but he gave his very life for the church. That's a pretty big deal. The third truth we learn about the church is that the disciples believed the church would look like a family. Look like a a, a family. You will know how people must live in the family of God, which is the church of the living God, Paul said to Timothy in his first letter, 1 Timothy 3, 15. The church should look like a family. And the fourth truth about the church is that the church is the hope of the lost world. And you can read about that in 2 Corinthians 5. In fact, we're going to do that, and we're just going to look at 2 Corinthians 5 right now. We'll spend the rest of our time together in the uh, 2 Corinthians 5 next few verses. By the way, let me tell you, all of this stuff is in my message notes at reallifecc.us. Just scroll down to the My Message Notes link and click on that. If you're joining us online at live.reallifecc.us, you just click on the Notes tab at the top there, and all of these notes will pop up. And that will lead you to something that's going to happen at the very end of the message. And so if you have that handy, that will be great. And all these verses are listed there. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord... We persuade others. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he, Jesus, died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So Jesus is the one that he's talking about here. And knowing what Jesus has done for us, we want to persuade others to follow him as well. Since we know Jesus, we try to persuade others to follow Jesus. Now his love compels us because we're convinced as, as proved by our belief and our repentance. We talked about that a few weeks ago. We're convinced that Jesus died for all so that everybody died. Though not everybody experiences real life in Jesus, right? We know that Jesus died for everybody. In fact, you go to the scripture that says, while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. So sometimes we in the church can kind of get big heads and we think, oh man, uh, God did all this stuff to us, reconcile us because he loves us because we're so great. Like, yeah, but Jesus did the same thing for every other person who doesn't even care about him. He went to the cross for those people who spit on him and ridiculed him and beat him before he was hung there. And so Jesus died for everybody, even though everybody doesn't experience real life in him. So today I want to introduce you to real life's discipleship flow process. This is how we internally visualize our role as Jesus' church, which is the hope of the lost world. Paul says that because we know Jesus, we are to persuade others. Disciples of Jesus make disciples for Jesus. So you get that connection? If we're a disciple of Jesus, our our role, our job is to make disciples for Jesus. And so Jesus' love compels us to invite others into that same real life. And so our role in the world is to invite everyone into that relationship 
with Jesus. To the same life we have experienced and for which we hope in eternity. We invite everyone to experience the real life that we've experienced and the real life that's coming, right? We have a real life on this planet as we live and we make present the kingdom of God by his following his word and his ways and his wisdom. But we know that one day Jesus is going to come back. And when he does, every believer is going to be given this new life and we're going to be changed. And, tra- and then our real lives begin where we won't get tired and we can run and we can never wear out, where you could practice the piano all day long and your fingers would never get tired. It's going to be incredible. And so we want to invite everyone into that relationship. Because Jesus didn't die just to pay for our sin. He died for the sin of everyone in the whole world. And so that's represented by the world here, that we have to have a a, a bigger picture maybe, of our role and what we've been called to do than just our little town and our little area. He wants every one of his disciples to no longer, 2 Corinthians says, no longer live for ourselves, giving into that sinful, selfish nature, right? But to live for him, live for him who died and was raised again. That's the third and the fourth part of our gospel declaration. Okay, so this is pretty simple, right? So far, we're in the world and we should invite everyone to be a part of what we've experienced. Now, this is also the first part of our mission statement as a church to help every person possible find real life in Jesus. So that's what we want to do. That's the number one mission that we believe we're called to, help every person possible. Now, every person isn't going to come. They're not going to give their lives to Christ. It's not going to be this great thing when every time you share with somebody your faith and you invite them to come to church, they're not going to accept that. But every person possible, every person that is open, Jesus says no one comes to the Son unless the Father draws them. And so we just want to make sure that we're drawing people in the hopes that some of those people God will have drawn and they'll come and they'll receive and the real life that we have in, in Jesus. Everyone then is invited. Oh yeah, there it is. Everyone is invited then to be a part of what God is, is doing. And so those people who are invited become a part of a large pool of people who have heard about Jesus because they've been invited to, to hear about Jesus from an individual. But then often they connect to the larger church body through in-person or online gatherings. Right, And so there's this large pool of people that we're inviting and they're coming in and they're um, getting some exposure to church, whether that's here in person or those folks who are joining us online and in person and online group gatherings are invited to come and learn more about Jesus. And then that progresses. The invitation is continually presented to them to surrender to Jesus and become his disciple themselves. And that happens best in those large group settings. Now, once someone is invited into that relationship with a father where they can live their real lives through the Holy Spirit's power, they need to be instructed how to live, right? If you just try to do this church life thing and follow Jesus on your own, it becomes very difficult to do that because most of the time you're surrounded by people who are not following the same life path and plan that you are. 
And so life gets hard. And part of the great thing about church and connecting every week is that we've got this area, this place to to recharge, to grow, to be instructed so that we can then go out into the world and live out our call to make disciples for Jesus. So we have to be instructed on how to live as that disciple. This process begins as part of this large group gathering, but it's best taught, caught, and continued in smaller groups of disciples that we call life groups or life teams. Now here at Real Life, you probably haven't heard the term life teams. You've heard the term life groups before, small groups of people who get together to do life together. You probably haven't heard of life teams. That's because it's a brand new term. You'll hear it a lot more this year as we move forward in this process. Um, but life teams are just service teams. Like a life group is a, is a group where you're studying God's word, then you go out to live it out. A, a life team is a team that exists to serve other people. And so we got a bunch of those here in the church, and hopefully we'll have um, more. But hopefully you can begin to see Jesus' own plan for disciple-making begin to be more clear. He started out with a large number of people who heard him preach, right? Jesus went out in the hills, the countryside, the cities, and he preached, and lots of people came to listen to him preach. But only a few of those accepted the invitation and began following him around as he preached. And they became part of this group of people who followed him everywhere. There were about 120 of them, Acts tells us, about 120 people who followed Jesus and were kind of there and walked through his ministry with him. But out of those 120, that large group of people, Jesus had 12 that were closer to him than the 120. 12 that he spent more time with. He called them his disciples. And, and, and so he would tell a parable to the large group, knowing that they might not all get it. But then he'd go with a small group of 12 disciples and he would go, okay, here's what that parable means. And he did that because he knew that smaller group of individuals was going to be the leaders of his church that he was building after he went back to the Father. And so there's this process that Jesus is moving through. He spent most of his time then, not with the large groups, but with that group of 12. And that group was instructed in specific ways how to live and look more like Jesus and do what Jesus did. And in fact, Jesus sent those 12 out to heal people and to drive out evil spirits. And it's a whole big cool thing. And so Jesus is instructing them little by little how to look more like him. But there was even a smaller group of individuals with which Jesus spent even more time, private and personal moments with them, Peter, James, and John, and and they were inspired by Jesus. They were inspired at a level that the other 12 and certainly the 120 weren't. These three guys saw Jesus at his lowest point. So I remember when Jesus goes out into the garden, into the olive grove to pray on the night that he's betrayed. He doesn't take all 12 of his disciples, but he takes these three, Peter, James, and John. He says, come with me away from the others. And then Jesus kind of left them and he went off a little bit, it says, to pray. Peter, James, and John probably could hear Jesus praying. They heard what Jesus was going through. The struggle that Jesus had, because look, in Jesus' humanity, he had to deal with the selfish nature that we humans have. 
And so Jesus prays three times, God, if there's any other way to save humanity than me going to the cross, please make that available because I don't want to do this. I don't, this is going to be painful. This is going to be awful. I don't want to experience this. And Jesus was the perfect sacrifice because at the end of that, he said, okay, God, it's not about what I want. It's about what you want. And so if this is what needs to happen, I'll do it. I'll accept it. I'll go through with it because that's what you want. And so Scripture says, Hebrews says, that, that Jesus learned how to be obedient through his suffering. He followed God even when he didn't want to. And these three guys, Peter, James, and John, they saw Jesus wrestle with that stuff at a level that nobody else did. So Jesus was able to be victorious over his selfishness and be obedient even unto death. But only four of them, Jesus, Peter, James, and John, only four of them knew the depths of Jesus' struggle because they walked that kind of with him. And so this group became Jesus' closest disciples. And so this is how Jesus built his church. Large numbers of people were invited and of them who continued to follow, they accepted his instruction on how to live. And then a smaller group even became his disciples. But the call for everyone was the same, regardless of how close to Jesus they were. The, the call is the same for the large group as the smaller groups and even those disciples who were closest to Jesus. The call was the same. And the call is to... Um, illustrate Jesus to everybody. So this is how Jesus built his church. Look, we want to um, go to, Julie, we're going to go to 2 Corinthians. Look at some of these. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Keep that in your head. Go to the next one, Julie. All this is from God. So all this stuff we're looking at, the church and how it's built, all this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, okay? So all this comes from God. This plan is from God to be in relational partnership with his pinnacle creation, you and I. This was his plan. And so he sent his son Jesus to reconcile us to himself, and then he gave us the same job that Jesus had to reconcile others to God as well. He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. God was reconciling the whole world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. He was committed to us, he committed to us the message of reconciliation. And so we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So, we'll go back to our, uh, our, our form here. And, and so, as we come in, we're reconciled to God through Jesus. And then our job is to reconcile others or to illustrate Jesus to the rest of the world. So, are you getting this 
plan? Is it making sense? I hope it's making sense. So we invite everybody in. There's a large group of people. Some of those people are going to allow God to instruct them. They're going to grow in their faith. They're going to look more like Jesus. Some of those people are going to be disciples. They're going to spend even more time. They're going to grow. And then they're going to be sent out. All of them, though, are to illustrate Jesus in our daily lives. Whether you've been coming for a week or you've been coming for 10 years or 50 years you've been a Christian, our job for everybody is to illustrate Jesus to the rest of the world. We become, we become Jesus to the world. God reconciles the world to himself through us, just like he did through Jesus. And so we become portraits, albeit poor ones, of Jesus. We illustrate Jesus to the rest of the world. And so when people see disciples of Jesus, they should be able to assume that the way that disciple is living is the way that Jesus would live. Let that sink in just for a second. As other people look at us as believers, like, look, your neighbors know that you go to church because your vehicle pulls out of the driveway every Sunday morning and it comes back every Sunday night or, or you're, you're not being contacted um, if you're watching online. You're like, don't pick up your phone during this time. Or your friends, your neighbors, your family, they know that you're involved in church. They see what's going on, your coworkers. So it's very important that we look like Jesus in the world because they believe that the way we live is the way Jesus would live. So the things we say, the things we do, the things we think, those are all important. Because if, if, if we're not looking more like Jesus, we're not going to be able to reconcile the world to God. It's important for us to make Jesus' kingdom present in our world. By trusting his word, by following his ways, by implementing his wisdom into our lives so that other people see him and they are want to be reconciled to God. And this is the second half of our mission statement, to look more like Jesus every day. Now there are three main ways that we make disciples for Jesus. Every follower of Jesus, regardless of how long you followed, regardless of what you're doing in the kingdom, regardless of anything else that goes on, every single follower of Jesus is called to do one specific thing, to love the lost and the least. In Matthew chapter 25, verses 40 and 45, Jesus says this to these two different groups of people. If you remember um, the story, uh, it's the end of the world. Every person has been gathered before the throne, before Jesus, and it says that he separates people, and then he says to those on his right, you did the things that I wanted you to do, and so come in and enjoy your father's kingdom. And they said, hey, wait a minute, when did we see you naked or see you hungry or thirsty and give you food and clothing and all that kind of stuff? And Jesus in verse 40 says, as often as you did this for the least of these, you did it for me. And then he turns to those on his left and he says, you didn't do any of those things and so depart from me. You don't get to come into heaven. And they're like, hey, wait a minute. We clothed people and we did, you know, like, and he says, when you didn't do it to them, you didn't do it to me. Because Jesus takes the way that we treat others personally. And so every believer of Jesus Every believer of Jesus is to love the lost and the least. We'll call them marginalized people in our world. 
That every one of us, regardless of our history, our background, or whatever's going on in our life, whatever place we are in the kingdom and ministry and mission, whatever we're doing, every believer, every follower of Jesus is to love the lost and the least, to love the marginalized. But some followers of Jesus, besides loving the lost and the least, um, in their daily lives will also be involved in ministry. And so some people will become full-time or part-time in, in ministry. So Amber, our student ministry director, she's uh, part-time at the church, and so she serves in ministry. I, I, I don't know, you ask her mom, I don't know that she ever knew or thought she'd be doing this, but she's doing a fantastic job. We're so grateful to, to have her. Um, love is talking to her and listening to the things that she's doing and um, with the kids. It's just so exciting. And so sometimes people are called into ministry in different ways and, and, and filling different different um, niches. And so um, you or, or maybe one of your children or grandchildren may one day serve in ministry here at this church or in some other church. One of the greatest um, uh, things that I, that I feel like I got to be a little bit of a part of, and I, and I wasn't really, and I, I take no credit for it, but years and years ago in the early 90s, I did some youth ministry work. Here's what I learned about doing youth ministry at church. I should not do youth ministry at church. That's what I learned. I was not good at it. It did not go. I, just, I could not, like, um, like I, I'm looking at you there, Funk. You did that for a long time. Like, oh, my goodness, I couldn't handle it. It drives me crazy. Is this not good? But one of the kids that was in my youth group in the early 90s is now the worship leader uh, at Journey Church, I think, in Tennessee, and he's doing a fantastic job, and he's memorized whole books of the Bible and just done great things in, in ministry. And um, it's just a joy to talk to him and to know. I, I knew that kid when he was just a squirrely, um, mouthy guy and never would have thought that he'd be doing what he's doing today. And so maybe some of your kids or grandkids might be involved in, in ministry someday. Um, maybe that's paid, maybe that's unpaid. We got a whole bunch of people here that are unpaid on Sunday morning. Um, and without them doing what they do, we couldn't do this. We couldn't put this um, service on every Sunday. So some are going to be involved in ministry. We're all called to the marginalized, but some are going to be involved in ministry. And even still, a smaller number might be called to missions. Much like our uh, church planning partners, uh, Lee and Tina Swanda, who are now overseeing about seven different uh, Eastern European nations and the church planning efforts that are happening there. So we, uh, we have re-upped with them again for 2021 to um, support them in missions. And, and this is what they're doing with their lives. They're helping nations and people plant churches uh, all over Eastern Europe. And so that's really, really cool. By loving the marginalized, by being involved in ministry and missions, disciples of Jesus are able to fulfill their one and primary purpose. We have one and primary purpose. And that is to help one more person find real life in Jesus. Does that remind you of anything? Maybe all these shirts that you have seen? One God, one way, one more. That's what we want to be focused on, not just this year, but in the coming years, to remember that there's always one more. And, and if I invite my neighbor and they come and, and they connect and they're instructed and they become disciples and, and they begin to illustrate Jesus to everyone, then it's like, who's next? Right? So we got to be asking ourselves all the time, who's next? Where are we going next? Who is God leading us to? 
And so this is our plan. This is our discipleship flow process. This is how we're going to make disciples and send them out into the world to make more disciples. So this is us, right? This is why we're here. We're sinful in nature, but Jesus came and he fulfilled the covenants and, and his gospel or good news is that he lived and he died and he rose again and that we can be partners with him in the kingdom forever. And, and we can be disciples of his and we can look more like Jesus and represent God to the world and bring more people in. And we can have this plan and this purpose. Disciples of Jesus make disciples for Jesus. And we want you to join us in that process. Whether you're in person here um, this morning or whether you're joining us online, uh, we want to give you the opportunity this morning to partner with us to accomplish God's mission, which is really our mission, God's mission. It's, it's the same, to help every person possible find real life in Jesus and look more like him every day. That's what we want to do. So today, you're going to have the opportunity to sign on the dotted line as a partner at Real Life Church. And so if you're joining us online, please take a minute and hop over to reallifecc.us forward slash partnership. Our partnership um, covenant is listed there online and you can go through, you can check off the boxes, just follow the directions there. You can do that. If you're joining us here in person, you can do that on your mobile device, uh, fill out that partnership covenant, uh, digitally sign your name at the bottom of that and you can be a part of real life. You can be a partner here um, at real life. If you are not a techie person, you don't want to uh, take that route, we do have paper copies. And so um, Lance has those. And so if you would like a paper copy of our partnership covenant, you just raise your hand and we'll make sure that we get those passed around or you can see him right after the service and we'll get that um, done. All of our partnership covenant stuff is right out of the Bible. There's nothing crazy. You don't have to commit to anything or give us your firstborn child or anything like that. It's just right out of the Bible. It's really plain. It's really obvious. It's stuff that you would go, this is the kind of church that I'd want to be a part of. And so um, just encourage you to, um, to do that, uh, to become a partner, to, to be a part of what God is doing here at, uh, at Real Life. Um, now, for those of you who are in the area who have not yet followed Jesus in baptism by immersion, we are having a baptism service next Sunday, February 7th. So if you're going through that partnership covenant, you're like, hey, I, I'm a believer, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I have never been baptized, I've never taken that step, we can make that happen next Sunday. And so um, uh, there's a place to go at the bottom of that uh, form online where you can click that and you can register to be baptized next week. You can join. I think we've got two or three already uh, scheduled for that. And so you can join them in that next week. Um, and uh, if you're online, let us know because I've got a plan for maybe this summer where we could have a uh, big baptism service with people who don't even live around here. Uh, so we're working on the details of that, but I think that might be kind of neat. And so if you're not uh, around the area, you might be able to join us in that and go public with your faith um, that way. So um, 
this is us. We'd love to have you be a part of what God do, is doing here and be a partner here at, at Real Life. Go through that partnership covenant. Look at that stuff. Uh, and if God is leading you and directing your heart to, to sign that, go ahead and do that. If you've already been through our Discover Real Life uh, partnership seminar, you've already filled that thing out, don't worry about it. Um, but, uh, but for those of you who haven't, this is your opportunity uh, uh, to make that happen and, and to, to be like official, like this is my church. Okay, let's pray. God, thanks for loving us. Thank you for giving so much to us. Thank you for this church and these people who serve so incredibly well um, to help every person possible find real life in your son, Jesus. Would you help us continue to do that, God? Would you help us to look more like your son every day so that we can be part of this process of, of inviting everyone and then illustrating Jesus back to the world and bringing more in that, that, that heaven might just be full. And, and God, would you um, call us into these deeper levels of understanding? Every person who was called by Jesus was called not just for conversion, but to become a disciple. It's not just about getting our sin dealt with. It's about learning how to look like Jesus each and every day in our lives to reconcile the rest of the world to you through Jesus, just as we have been. And so would you help us do that, God? And, and would you help us as, as we um, grow, as we have these partners come in? Um, God, we're just excited to see what you're gonna do in this new year. So thank you for being present with us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, we're going to uh, give you some time this afternoon or today after church to complete that partnership covenant. Again, if you want a paper copy, see Lance uh, after, the shirt, after the service. He'll just be back there. Um, and next week, we're going to do baptism service, and we're going to finally talk about last year, kind of what happened in the church last year. We're going to talk about a little bit about where we're going this next year. Um, you'll get all the numbers and all of that stuff for what's been going on last year and what we hope for um, this year. So I hope that you'll join us uh, next Sunday for Baptism Sunday. Until then, love you. See you then. Thanks for tuning in to Real Life Live. Our hope and prayer is that the time you've spent with us has left you encouraged and challenged in your faith. It may have also left you with some questions or maybe wondering how all this faith stuff works. So we want to help you with that. Head over to reallifecc.us for a few different ways we can connect. We're thankful you joined us today and want to extend an invitation for you to join us in person at our current home in El Dorado, Kansas at the Civic Center, 201 East Central, on Sundays at 10 a.m. We hope you'll keep tuning in and growing in your faith to look more like Jesus every day. See you next time.